looking at verses 15 through 24. God's word beginning in verse 15 of Luke 14 says, When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who eats at the banquet of the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a banquet and invited many at the time for the banquet. He sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. When I was in high school, There was this girl that I wanted to get to know better, and after plucking up much courage, I called her on the telephone. And after a little chit-chat, I said, hey, would you like to go do something this Friday? No, she said, love to, but I'm going to be studying. I'm not easily deterred. What about next Friday? I'm going to be studying then too. Well, when the dog's on the hunt, you can't slow him down. So, well, what about three Fridays from now? I'm going to be studying that Friday as well. At that point, this little thought creeped into my mind. I think she actually just doesn't want to be with me. Ding, 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 we have a winner. Yes, she clearly was not wanting to go out with me. And through her excuses, she was letting me know, not so subtly, that she wasn't interested. In her mind, there was something better to do on a Friday night than be with me, and I don't actually don't think it was studying, but it definitely wasn't being with me. Well, this morning we come to the last scene in Jesus' meal at this Pharisee's house. It began back in chapter 14, verse 1. And here he warns these men that those who most naturally would get to be at his banquet will one day not be there because they have chosen other things instead. You know, they've been invited First, but they find other things more exciting or life-giving. And when the moment of decision comes, they show they don't really care, even though they've been invited. If you have a bulletin, you can see the outline. Because in the first section, we see Jesus telling of the host gracious generosity. And then we see the guest's pathetic excuses in verses 18 through 20 in the story. Then wraps up with the host inclusive invitation. But first, the host gracious generosity. Because... In verse 15, we have this story. Jesus, again, is at this feast. And you may remember from the prior weeks, Jesus is talking to them. And he has said some things that led to some awkward silences where they couldn't respond because it would have shown their fault. And he had just rebuked them for trying to get the places of honor. And then he'd subtly rebuked them for 
trying to and only inviting those people who would invite them back, who would reward them for having them over to their house. And so again, there's this awkward silence. And in the midst, this man cries out, well, blessed is the one who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Most likely, as Jesus has been talking to them about where you should go at a feast and who you should invite to your feast, this man's mind went to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 is a very fascinating chapter because right before in Isaiah 24, God has been telling about his judgment on Israel because of their rebellion. But then, even in spite of that judgment, Isaiah 25, 6 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And Isaiah 25 stood in this stark contrast to the judgment prophesied right before that in Isaiah 24. Because God is going to provide food and celebration out of joy. And Isaiah declared there that this is going to happen because God swallowed up death forever. He took away their tears and his people's reproach. And so Jesus, he hears this man saying, well, blessed is everyone who eat bread in the kingdom of God. And rather than affirming that, he tells this story. And he tells this man had this great banquet and he invited many. Now, great banquets of their days would have a dual invitation. First, there would be a general invitation that would go out. And then whoever responded, as we would say today, RSVP, they would then later get a second invitation when it was time for the feast to begin on the day of it and the time. Now, we don't necessarily understand this because we're a very time-driven society. We could just say, well, be there at 4 o'clock, and we would all have a watch that would tell us 4 o'clock. And we have such structured lives with stoves and all these things that we could have such set times. But in their society, and even still many today, the watch is not what drives everything. And so they would have a general day, and then at the appointed time, when they had everything prepared, they would invite them. We even saw this in Esther, in the book of Esther, where she had the feast, but Haman was not brought to the feast until it was ready. And thus, in verse 17, Jesus continues the story by telling of when the time for the eating of the banquet has arrived. The servant goes out to tell those who are called, hey, everything's now ready. And the expectation would be that these people are almost immediately ready to go because they've known, oh, today's the great feast. You know, they would maybe need to straighten their hair or wash up quickly, but they wouldn't have anything major going on because this was the day and they would have no conflicting activities. It's like when you're about to go and you're just about to leave and your kids go, hey, can I get out the paints and paint? They're like, no, 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 we can't do that. We've got to leave soon. We can't get something out that's going to burden us. We've got to be ready to go. So all these people should be ready to go as soon as this person comes. In this first part of the story, I think Jesus is showing us the generosity of the host, ultimately the generosity of God. And here this host is throwing this massive feast for these people to come to. And those seated at the feast would be nodding their heads. Yes, yes, we know Isaiah 25, this great feast that God is going to give us. This feast that comes only because of his gracious invitation. You know, they didn't do anything to earn it. They know Isaiah 24 came right before this. They know that God's going to have to swallow death forever. And they know that they would have had to respond, yes, I'll be there. As Keith read for us earlier from Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, 
come buy and eat. Those who get to come to the feast do so at the generosity, at the cost of the host. As well, I believe that Jesus' story here is pointing out something wonderful, and that is coming to God is a great benefit and blessing in your life. It's like coming to a feast. Sometimes people get the impression, well, okay, I got to get serious in life, so I got to start going to church and doing all that stuff. Oh, it's really boring, and I'm going to hate it the whole time, but this is what you have to do because this is the way things should be. Not at all. Jesus is showing us that coming to God is the blessing in life. That's when you enjoy life is when you come to the one who wants to bless you. There's nothing better than this. He's prepared everything, and all you have to do is just come. However, the story then takes an odd turn, for we see next that Jesus tells in verses 18 through 20 of the guest pathetic excuses. Though they all said they could come, look at what they say in verse 18. But they all like began to make excuses. And the first person says, well, look, I just bought a field, and I need to go out and expect it. You know, sometimes you do make a purchase, and you need right away to go look at it. But nothing about purchasing a field immediately needs to be inspected. You know, surely this person wouldn't have just bought land without knowing a little bit about it. And nothing can be done in a day on a field that couldn't be done the next day. And thus, this person is really like something that could be done later. Something becomes this, becomes more important, and trumps his desire to go to that feast now. Similarly, the second person says, oh, I just bought five yoke of oxen. I got to go inspect them. Let me be excused from the feast. Well, again, yes, you should inspect them, but I think all of the listeners of Jesus' story would be like, well, the man would have inspected them before he bought them. You don't go buy oxen and then go, hey, let's see what they look like. And again, yes, it would probably be good to take them out on a test drive, a test plow, so to speak, but you don't have to do that today. You can wait until tomorrow. And yet they're saying, no, this is more important to us. Well, the third person says, well, like I just got married. And he didn't even ask, say, excuse me. He just says, I'm not coming. Deuteronomy 24, 5 says, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. However, this is a celebration. This is no public duty that is putting this man's life at risk. This is a celebration. He would have known of this before. You know, in their society, engagement, which they called betrothal, and then marriage took months. So before he received this invitation, he knew when his wedding was going to be. He knew when all this was going to happen. But now that it has come, he says, look, my new wife, she's just more enjoyable. And so he doesn't even ask to be excused. He's just unable to come. And the pathetic nature of each of these excuses would have struck all of Jesus' hearers. Any of those activities wouldn't have been known about, and nothing about them demanded that they couldn't go to the feast. However, while they're ridiculous to us, I imagine in the voices, in the minds of those who said them, they were quite legitimate. In their own thinking, yes, this is why I can't come. You know, we as people are very good at excuses. And we think they're very good. Not too long ago, uh, 
congressman, New York congressman, was pulled over. And when the officer tested him, he had twice the allowed limit of alcohol in his system. No problem, officer. I've just been using hand sanitizer that's alcohol-based. The officer did not buy it, and the, he ended up being arrested. Clearly, that, made, that makes no sense. Your hand sanitizer doesn't lead to twice the level of blood alcohol content. And yet we come up with all these excuses. Oh, I'm so tired. Can't do any chores. Oh, hey, we're going to go get some ice cream. Oh, are we ready? Oh, I thought you were tired. Oh, no, no. I, I've, uh, well, okay. Yeah. And we get so good, we think, and making excuses in our mind. Oh, this is really, everyone's going to believe me. I don't have to do this. But to everyone else, they're so pathetic. But the problem is, is we need to not excuse our excuses, but often realize they're just lies. That they're doing anything we can because we are saying, this is not the best. This is, and I'm going to say whatever I need to, even if I have to lie, because I want what is better. Thus, while everyone listening to Jesus' stories would think these are absurd, I really think these people thought they're legitimate. And yet Jesus is saying that, look, there's this sad reality that we can allow what's good in life to distract us from really what is best in life. You know, the story here is clearly depicting a feast is going to be with God. And yet, due to finances, due to family, they were kept away. It's interesting because Jesus is not saying the things that keep you from God, it's that big list of horrible sins. It's when you're like, I'm the type of person, well, I'd come to the feast, but actually I'm about to go rob a convenience store and go get drunk tonight. Well, I'm not going to come to the feast because I have an affair I'm going to go be a part of. No, these are nice responses. These are good, legitimate things that at some point in life they need to take care of. Randy Alcorn writes, There was nothing wrong with what any of the three men was involved in. They didn't stay away from the banquet because they were stealing or committing adultery. They stayed away because they had more pressing concerns. A new field, a new wife, a new herd. But regardless of their reasons, good or bad, the bottom line was the same. They were so preoccupied with their new treasures that they said no to the banquet giver and missed the banquet. Jesus has sounded this warning before of good things distracting us from the best things. Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower and the seed of this one soil. In Luke 8, 14, Jesus, Jesus says, And as for what fell among the thorns, these are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So whether it's family or finances or just fun, those are all wonderful gifts God has given to us. And yet, sadly, every single one of God's gifts to us can distract us from the one who gave them to us in the first place. And yet, which of us has on our spiritual radar watch out for incoming, inordinate temptations to be with family? Watch out hey, can we start meeting once a week? I really need some accountability because I just love to have fun too much. That's my issue in life and it's distracting me from God. No, we all, I got these big sins. That's what keeps people from God. 
And Jesus is saying, no, it's the basic things of life that can distract you and keep you from his feast. While I was pastoring in Ohio, I wrote the following letter to, I wrote to a member of our church. He lived about 30 minutes from the church and he was slightly immobilized because of some leg issues that he almost always had to wear braces for. In my letter, I said, dear Tony, it's not his real name, it was great to talk with you this last week and hear how you're doing. I've missed seeing you here at church and talking with you every Sunday. You mentioned that your body really hurts on Sunday due to your braces. That surely causes you much pain, and it pains me to know that you're going through that difficulty. As we discussed, though, there are good churches in your area that have Saturday and Sunday evening services. I know our church is a long way from you, and with your health challenges, we understand why you're not able to come. Our ultimate goal for you, as with every member, is to see you exalting Jesus. Going to a worship service is not the only way we do that. We get to praise him every day in the way we live, think, and act. Yet we get the special joy of gathering with other believers on a weekly basis. As your friend and one of your current pastors, it burdens me because it appears, and appearances are not always what they seem, that you have made a higher priority out of bowling than you have of worshiping with other believers. I say that because you could always quit bowling and then you'd have the freedom of time to go to a Saturday evening service or not have as much pain on Sunday morning that you could go to one of these. You know, as I talked to the man, this was his issue. Is, well, I, I go bowling every Saturday, and because of the braces, then my legs hurt, so then Sunday I just can't go. Well, as I went on, I said, bowling, getting out of the house, spending time with friends are all great and good things. And I alluded to the story here in Luke 14. I said, however, like in the parable, if those good things crowd out the best things, then Jesus is warning we will miss the feast. I don't say these things to be mean and cruel, but rather because I care about you. I want what is best for you. Don't settle for the good when the better and the best is available to you. And we probably all know Tony's. And in our hearts, we can probably often be Tony. That almost anything can distract us from God, from gathering with God's people. Now we have to be cautious here because anything can be made pharisaical. There are times we have people in our church, sometimes they have to be away. And those are legitimate things. Sometimes your health keeps you away. There's nothing wrong with that. Again, we can become legalistic. But I often am concerned when people give excuses for not gathering to pray, not gathering to be together, that they would never give to their work, that they would never give to their school. Those excuses would never be given anywhere else. And Jesus is warning, look, if anything can distract us from God because it's better, that should be a warning. There's a greater feast in front of us. I remember the context here. The leader said in verse 15, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Yet Jesus just told the story to that man to warn him. Look, yeah, you know the right phrases. You know the right places to be. But just being there doesn't mean you'll end up at the great feast. You know, Jesus is warning them, look, you Jews, you religious leaders, you know the right things to say. You know to be with me. But you actually don't want to come to me when I call you. They know how to say and do the right things externally. But internally, they don't want anything to do with them. Do we? You know, sadly, we are the type of people that Jesus is warning against. We know the right things to say. 
I'm saved by faith alone. I have a time when it happened. We know the right places to be. Oh, yes, i got to be at church. And yet, when the rubber meets the road of life, what rules our hearts? Is it our money? Is it our family? Is it our friends? Is it fun? Or is it God himself? And Jesus is calling us to probe and say, do I really love Christ? It's interesting, this is the last recorded meal that Jesus has with the religious leaders. It's as though this is his last warning, saying, look, I've told you clearly, I've given you stories, I'm putting before you, you need to see me as your greatest treasure, or you'll miss the feast. Well, Jesus now turns to discuss how the host will respond to this rejection. This is the last section, verses 21 through 24. The host, inclusive invitation. Verse 21, it says, So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of his house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. So they've been invited and they even said they'd come. But when the time came for them to come to the feast, they said, we have better things to do instead. You know, they had basically promised love. Oh yeah, we love you. We want to be with you. Actually, we don't. We have something better. Now change the scenario for a minute. Imagine you've been asked out on a date. And you're excited. This person wants to be with you. And the time comes and they haven't shown up. And so you send them a text to go, hey, are you coming over? And they reply, oh, I'm sorry. I really wanted to clean out my kitchen and cupboards tonight. Kitchen, cupboards, or me. You wouldn't go, oh, well, I'm a kind person. No big deal. You'd be angry. You'd be, what? I, I reserved this night because I wanted to go out with you. And you wanted to clean your kitchen cupboards? That's such a lame excuse. And yet the story causes many people to wonder, is Jesus saying God gets angry because we say we love him, but then when the moment comes, we show we don't? Yes, that's what the story is saying. Again, imagine what's going on here. They have been invited graciously to this feast at no cost to themselves. And the host had gone to all the effort to prepare the meal, to purchase the meal and make the meal. And then the time comes to give them the meal and they go, eh, we have something better to do tonight. We're not coming. This cost the host greatly. Shouldn't he have been upset that he went to all these preparations and they didn't come? Well, yes. And then we know that the cost to God is not merely food and money. That's a story of something greater. The great banquet with God. Remember, this great feast is from Isaiah 25, which follows, deep theological insight, Isaiah 24, right before God's judgment. And what causes God's judgment to go away? How could God say that, look, I'm going to swallow death forever. I'm going to take all your tears away. I'm going to take your reproach. Well, how could he say that? Well, they know the story. They know that Isaiah 55 alludes to this. Come, buy without money. Drink without cost. And where did that come from? Right on the heels of Isaiah 53. All this could occur because of the servant of God, who in Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, it says of him, Surely he has borne our griefs and our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. It was on the cross that Christ swallowed up death forever. It's on the cross that he took away our tears. It was on the cross he took the reproach of his people. Thus in Revelation 19, this feast gets renamed. It gets called the wedding supper of the Lamb. The Lamb of God who had to be sacrificed. And yet, though God's servant, God's son had to pay this price for the great feast, when the servant comes to tell him to go, eh, I really want to just go check my field today. Eh, big whoop. You sent your son to die for me, but I got a new car. I want to go for a joy ride, so sorry, not coming. Well, that's nice, but I really have a great date with my wife tonight, and so I'm not interested. Thank you, honestly. It sounds wonderful, but not interested. And that God would go to such lengths to reach his people, to provide them good, and then at the end they go, eh, that just doesn't really sound that good to us. Of course he would be angry. He sent his own son. And we trample his blood as worthless and say, there's better things in life. This, so Jesus is here saying, look, it brings anger. But that's not the end of the story because then he says, well, go out and invite others. Go out and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Notice the host didn't say, well, the party's over. They're not coming. The host didn't say, well, oh, poor me. No one likes me. Oh, miserable me, my life's so sad. You know, it's not our presence that's going to make the party. You know, it's not the wedding supper of the Jeremy. Ah, oh, the party could start, I'm here now. It's not the wedding supper of any of us. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the feast is going to go on. And the invitation has been given to all. Do you want to come? And Jesus welcomes any and all. He, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Those are the ones Jesus had said to them earlier in this story, in verse 13, that they should invite to their own parties. Why? Because, well, they can't repay you. Some of you may know Philip Yancey. He's a Christian author. And at one point, he got to go with his wife to Nepal. And there he tells of a time they were given a tour of a medical facility that helped rehabilitate people with leprosy. And there, Yancey writes that they went into the courtyard and they saw, in his words, one of the ugliest human beings he'd ever seen. Her hands were covered in gauze. Her legs were stumps where most people had feet. Her face showed the worst ravages of that horrible disease. She was blind and scars covered patches of skin on her arms. Well, they finished the tour, they saw the facility, and this creature, as Yancey called her, had pulled, dragged herself across the courtyard to the edge of the walkway. He then writes, I'm ashamed to say my first thought was, she's a beggar. She wants my money. My wife, however, had a much more godly attitude. She bent down, put her arm around her. The elderly woman began to sing in the polya tune we all immediately recognized. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. 
their guide went on to tell him she's one of the most devoted church members and she comes every time the door opens. God's feast will be full and he will welcome anyone in. You know, we may look, we'll say, you're blind, you're crippled, you're lame. You're not the type of person we want. And yet God says, all are welcome. You know, Jesus is showing the greatest hindrance to coming before God is not our physical issues, not our financial issues. The biggest issue is our indifference to him. It says, there's something better than you. I'll say yes, but really I want to go check out my field, my ox, be with my wife. And yet God's feast will be full. We even see this because the servant comes back and there's more room. And he says, well, go out to the hedges. Go out to the highways of life and compel them to come in. Your hedges is probably referring to where beggars are found and further shows that God invites all to himself. Now, don't get me confused. The point of the story is not that the host is desperate. The point is that he's generous. And the compelling people to come in is not dragging them in oh i don't want to come you're coming i don't want to come no you're coming there were already people who said they didn't want to come and the host didn't drag them there they have to be compelled because they are on the fringes of society of life and those who they would have thought were invited to the feast are the types who when they go by them on the road cross by the other side and wrinkle up their nose and they would think there's no way we're invited to this feast they wouldn't want us there And so they have to compel them to come in. To say, no, you are welcome. You are invited to the feast. And so they compel them to come. Well, Jesus ends ends the story in verse 24 and says to those at the meal who are there with him, he says, none of the men who are originally called will even taste of my banquet. Did you notice that amazing thing Jesus said at the end? He didn't say they won't eat of god's banquet he says they won't eat of my banquet jesus is saying all that was said in the old testament of that great banquet that's about me i'm the one who's going to give this banquet and again it's as though jesus is giving them one last opportunity he's been teaching him he the king his kingdom it's coming hasn't fully come but it is coming and he's initiated it and thus When this man talks about, hey, it'll be great when one day in the future we get to eat in the banquet of God. Jesus is saying, the banquet has begun now. I'm in your presence. If you don't recognize that, then you're not going to eat in the banquet in the future. It's here, right and now. And so Jesus is again calling them to see that he is the king. That he is the one that they should feast with. He's the lamb of God who lavishly provides the feast. And yet if they don't respond, Jesus says, they will never taste of the banquet. What we do now has an effect in eternity. You know, this story really is illustrating that those who would be expected to come, those who are invited first, the religious authorities, the Jews, they have missed out. And so God is going to go out to those in Jewish society that they don't think would ever be there, and even beyond them to the Gentiles. We see this in Acts 13, 45 and 47, which says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. 
For the Lord, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Your Christianity is the most inclusive of all religions in the world. Anyone can come. Jesus is saying it doesn't matter, male or female, young or old, Jew or Gentile, all are welcome. It's free for all. But he is also saying, but you must respond. You have to realize it comes through me. It's my banquet. And so you must respond to this invitation. Again, Isaiah 55 from earlier. So it says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. There is a time that it must be done. He goes on, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And so realize the greatness of the feast. Realize the greatness of God is what it's pointing to. Because the religious leaders, they've been shown all this, and yet they go, eh, I got some more exciting things to do. The invitation is extended to all, but you must respond. And what you do and decide now will have an impact for eternity. Randy Alcorn recounts the following story that I've told before, but it paints this picture so well. He says, after striking a large deposit of gold, two miners in the Klondike gold rush were so excited about unearthing more and more gold each day that they neglected to store provisions for the winter. Then came the first blizzard. Nearly frozen, one of the miners scribbled a note explaining their foolishness. Then he lay down to die, having come to his senses too late. Months later, a prospecting party discovered the note and the miners' frozen bodies lying on top of a huge pile of gold. Alcorn writes, Obsessed with their treasure, these men hadn't taken into account that the fair weather wouldn't last and winter was coming. Hypnotized by their wealth, they failed to prepare for the imminent future. The gold that seemed such a blessing proved to be a deadly curse. Seeking fulfillment in money, land, houses, cars, clothes, electronics, world travel, and cruises has left us bound and gagged by materialism. And like drug addicts, we pathetically think that our only hope lies in getting much more of the same. Meanwhile, the voice of God, unheard amid the clamor of our possessions, is telling us that even if materialism did bring happiness in this life, which it clearly does not, it would leave us woefully unprepared for the next life. Imagine you and your family plan a great vacation. You've gone online, you've seen all the sites, you've got it all mapped up, the details, the destinations, and the time goes, gets and arrives to go to the trip, and everyone gets in the car, and yet one of the family members stays in the house. And you go, oh, it's time to go. We're going to go see this site, and then we're going to go see this. And they go, I, t- I can see it right here online. This is what it's all about. I got the picture here. That's not what it's about. That's just a picture pointing to what we're going to get to go see. Don't be trapped looking at the picture. Go to the reality. And God has given us families. But the family is just a picture pointing to the greater family. You know, sadly, every one of our family members will die. We get to be with God forever. God has blessed us with finances, but those are just a picture of the greater wealth we'll have with God forever. Don't get stuck 
focusing your life on the pictures. Look forward to the one in which they're all about. The one that is showing us, this is what I'm about. And yet we cling to the pictures. Oh, I love it. And Jesus is warning us, look, there's a greater treasure, a greater feast, and it's myself. Won't you come to me? The cost is free. Oh, I've paid the cost. I'm the Lamb of God. So respond now. Respond that you may have this life. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have provided such a rich feast, the feast of yourself. Oh Lord, we do get distracted though. We get focused on all the fun and all the family events and all of the concerns over our possessions. Lord, wean us, rip us away from our love of things and give us a greater love for you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.